Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. All right. Hey, everyone. So real quick, if you're a regular listener and you have the ability to, I'd love for you to consider becoming a Patreon contributor. Uh, That'd be really great. I'd really appreciate it. And um, yeah, that's enough of that. So we have a really fun and exciting convo. I have Michael Vanacor, uh, Reverend uh, Vanacor with me here today, who's up from New York. Um, But yeah, uh, Michael, did you want to, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me on the program. I'm a fan. I listen pretty regularly to Faith and Capital. And so I was very excited to um, to be approached by you, Chase. Right on. And to have this conversation. And I am currently the Associate Minister for Congregational Life at Fort Washington Collegiate Church. That's in Washington Heights, New York. It's part of the Collegiate Church System, which is uh, a New York-based uh, Reformed Church in America and UCC uh, set of churches, and um, I've been doing ministry for some for some a couple of years now. Prior to going to seminary, I was a union organizer, uh, so some of my a lot of my commitments remain with uh, working people and uh, working class movements. And I've been involved also in immigrant uh, rights work and uh, organizing for racial justice and some of the things I'm. Basically, all of what I'm doing right now is trying to do church in the midst of um, pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. And we need, I mean, lots of people doing lots of different uh, roles right now, right? We need ministers who are who have, who have are committed to the kinds of work that you're doing, right? We need uh, labor organizers. We need um, immigrant right activists. We need lots of people coming from different works, coming together to transform the world. So I really appreciate uh, the work you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. So, I mean, I came across your name through a article that you wrote for the Institute of Christian Socialism. And um, I'm going to attach that to the show notes uh, if everyone, uh, if anyone would like to check that out. But you raised a lot of interesting ideas that um, I, I want to pack up or I want to kind of like unpack together. So, it, so in many ways, right, capitalism is a system of death <laughs> and and probably not just in one way but your article starts to to really get at this so in your article you talk about a particular kind of capitalists fundamental right to kill as you call it so help us understand how do bosses and employers in particular under capitalism possess this fundamental right to kill and what kinds of material conditions are necessary for capitalists to be able to wield this degree of sovereign power over the working class? Sure. Okay. So um, I would, I'll just back up and say that I didn't invent this idea of the fundamental right to kill out of, <laughs> out of nowhere. I got it from uh, a, libera- a Latin American liberation theologian named Jose Porfirio Miranda, who got it from Jean-Paul Sartre, who, who uh, in his critique of dialectical reason, uh, had this brilliant quote um, basically saying that when a, an, when a factory closes down, the, that company is exercising uh, the tacit, tacitly without explicitly saying it, this fundamental right to kill. 
And where that basically comes from um, is, is this notion that, and it's particularly acute in our modern neoliberal economy, is that all of, for working class people, for all of us really, but especially for working class people, people who live paycheck to paycheck, the only way they survive is by working, uh, by members of their family going out to work and then being paid for that labor. And that salary or that, those wages are the only way that you put food on the table, you get uh, uh, pay the rent, which is your shelter, you get your health care, if you get your health care through your employer, or you get go to a clinic, or you buy your medicine, or you go broke trying to buy your medicine. In a society, you, I think you mentioned the material conditions, in a society where basically there is no social safety net, or much of a social safety net to speak of, we have to work in order to survive. And so employers have this power or you know, bosses, employers have this power because if people don't work, they, they don't survive. They literally, and li- there's, there's, there's actually articles that talk about the actual people that die as a result of not having work. So if, in a, well, I'll stop there and see if you had any, and wanted me to, you know. Yeah, no, I think you're, um, to make sure I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that the working class, which is the vast, vast majority of people, are people who have to sell their labor. We have to find someone to exploit our labor, right, in order to survive. And, and, by, and by exploit, I mean, say, me and Reverend Vanacore and a couple other people, we're going to have to get together and we will uh, produce a total number of, say, fruits, right, uh, 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 um, a certain number of value, and that'll be the commodity will be sold on the profit and it'll come back. But all of that fruit that we, our labor produced, it's not going to come to us. We're only going to get a small percent, right? Um, and so what I hear you saying is basically in order to survive, if we are going to be able to, to purchase the basic means of, uh, of life and of necessity, we have to find someone to pay us these wages. Yes. Yes. And I think that in, as I mentioned in a, in, in a society where the, the welfare state has been stripped by neoliberal policies and, and uh, by, you know, by, at this point, generations of political and, and social um, stripping away of things like health care or um, welfare or different things that where we could get the things that we need to survive, our, our wages become really the only way that we, we, we can survive. So... The right to kill then is is um, very visceral in this sense. If you do work, you know, if, if in the work that I've done as a as an organizer, in the work that I've done as a minister with working class communities, um, the loss of a job is is def- devastating for a family for a community because people really, if people choose between um, putting a, a roof over their head. Um, or, and putting food on the table. Uh, oftentimes, people are going to choose putting a roof. They're going to have to choose one or the other, putting a roof over the table, food on the table. They're going to choose to keep their job. That's the biggest thing they're going to choose. So I guess that's kind of where, where I was starting as a premise. And then that's not, I mean, that's not even to talk about the actual conditions of work 
that a lot of people in working class situations that are very dangerous uh, and that are exacerbated by this coronavirus that that they're that they're living that they're working under. Okay, yeah. So so I hear a, actually a couple different ways in which employers wield this fundamental right to kill. On one hand, there's the excluding of a certain population, right, from ever being employed, especially under private capitalisms, um, that permanently there is the constant threat of death for people who uh, never have access to wages. Then there is the group of people who are working but are working in very dangerous working conditions. We've heard lots of reports about prison labor where they lose uh, limbs, because they're working in chicken uh, 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 chicken factories, and then I hear another situation where that you're saying is that at any moment, if the employer sees it more profitable to to shut down the entire factory, right, um, or to shut down the entire um, plant or or local operation, they have no responsibility, right, for the human beings that were depending on the, upon those wages. Um, so yeah, I, I, I find that interesting to think about how this fundamental right to kill can manifest itself in a plurality of ways. I would just add that, you know, it, it's uh, one of the things that makes, I think, capitalism so difficult to approach as a topic, uh, either for conversation or for organizing, is that it it's multifaceted and it's a, it's entrenched and it's at many different levels. So it's on the one hand, yes, we do. You can look at a particular workplace and say this is you know a source of some exploitation, or this particular management is exerting power in this way. But uh, really, capitalism is a system, right? That's set up um, on multiple, many different levels. I would say, and and. Um, you know, that goes back to the, the politicians that create or the, the judges that create the legal systems or the politicians that create the political frameworks for these things to happen uh, or uh, culturally and politic culturally and societally. Um, and I mentioned in my article this divide between those who at this time are able to work from home or stay at home and those who have to go out to work. Those of us who are uh, are working from home and everybody who's getting food whether you're a poor working class person or you're a rich person your food is coming from the same the same system that is exploiting farm workers in along the border in Florida or meat packing workers in in um, Nebraska so it's difficult to dismantle on a material level and very difficult to dismantle on an ideological level because I think on a certain basic level we all know that this is where our bread is butter. This is where our bread is coming from. Uh, so I guess um, I guess I wanted to just say that sometimes it's too easy or facile to point the finger in one place where really we're we're missing a bigger picture. Yeah, I think that is really helpful. We haven't ha- actually had a chance to talk about that on the podcast yet, but I think what I hear you alluding to is that, um, or I personally, I think that I am a participant in the system of capitalism. Um, I, I don't have a choice not to, but, but I think that's really important to acknowledge the ways in which that we are all wrapped up in the violence this, of the system of this death. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you started to name the, these two different choices that workers have. And so 
from Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama um, to Donald Trump, right? The mouthpieces of the Democratic and Republican parties agree on something. And, and what they agree on is that the U.S., its institutions, its values, um, and its quote-unquote citizens, right, um, stand above the rest of humanity. We, uh, we're, we're an exceptional people and an exceptional nation. In 2015, we were hearing one side saying, make America exceptional again. And then the other side was just saying, no, we're already exceptional. <laughs> but I do think that private capitalism's failure to have prepared us right now for the coronavirus and for this economic crisis that's just now beginning to um, emerge and wreak havoc, uh, I think that this can help us kind of undermine working class, both kind of trust in and allegiance to the United States myths and to the system of capitalism. So in your article, you talk about two choices, right? That millions of U.S. Americans, and you know we could extend it to billions of people all across the world right now, are having to apparently freely choose between. So what are these two choices, right? Uh, we, we love choices here in the U.S. So what are these two choices? Um, and then also as a minister... How are you helping your church community think about this world where a significant portion of the working class, as you said, are living paycheck to paycheck or perhaps couldn't even survive without wages for just just a couple of months? Right. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you how are you helping your church community think about this situation where workers are being forced to choose between basically two death threats? So the choice, uh, the choice, as I see it and the way that I've heard it articulated to me by many people in person is either we go out to work and we risk dying because we're in close proximity to other people that could be giving us COVID-19 or we stay home and we don't work and we don't get paid and we starve to death basically. And we wait for the, the landlord to hopefully not collect the rent. I mean, one month is April 1st came and went, and I'm thinking of a particular family uh, that's that I'm close with on a personal level. And, um, you know, I know them through ministry work, but I become closer to them on a on a on a personal level. And and I spoke with them on Zoom and they basically told me that um, the men in the family, these are these are immigrant folks. And they said the men in the family, the, co the construction company they work for shut down and there's no there's no. You know, they can't collect unemployment um, because they were getting paid in cash. Uh, so they're they're in that situation. And one of the women cleans houses and she doesn't want to go clean the houses um, because she doesn't want to be in someone's house and potentially get sick. And she says, I don't want my, to expose my daughter to this illness. And they have family members in their home country that they're supporting also. Actually, their home country is doing better than we are in terms of um, – taking care of his population in the middle of a crisis. So they're a little bit alleviated in that. Mm -hmm. But I speak to them after, and they were really worried about April 1st coming. And they, they articulated it to me in, this, in these words. It was like, we want to stay home because we don't want our children to get sick and die. But we're going to have to go out at some point. And these are people, forget about having a, a, a couple of months. These are people that, you know, from week to week don't have. And that's the situation for so many so many people living in this country of different backgrounds, but predominantly 
Um, they're going to be working class and predominantly people of color, black, African-American, Latinx, immigrant. So that's, that's, that's the choice, I think, that... And an, an article that I cited to in my article just showed the sort of vast disparity that it was something like uh, only 30%, I believe, of white workers have the opportunity to work from home, which means that 70% of white workers are either out working or, or are out of a job. Um, and the, it was even smaller, I think 16%, only 16% of uh, Latinx uh, workers are able to work from home and maybe it's been like 19% of African-Americans are able to work from home. So everybody else, the vast majority of Americans, as you said at the beginning, are facing this dilemma. Do I go out to work and potentially die or do I stay home and my family dies of starvation? And, you know, let's not even joke about this $1,200 stimulus check that maybe some people are getting, maybe some people are, are not. But that if you are an immigrant and you don't have a social security number, you have an I-10, anyone in your family that you that is on your taxes doesn't get that. You don't get that um, benefit anyway. So our government's response is basically nothing. And And people are faced with this choice. I would just... I would just add that, you know, on Democracy Now!, there were two, uh, this morning, there were two stories that were featured. Uh, one was of um, factory worker, uh, workers in a poultry plant where 350 workers in one facility tested positive for COVID-19. Mm. And they, in the Smithfield Foods shut the whole plant down. I mean, 350 workers and people are dying left and right in these places. And so we, these are people and you hear the interviews with the workers and they say, you know, we have to go to work, but we they literally are catching this thing and dying. And 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 uh, we were they also democracy and I also talked about um, farm workers who are essentially living. Many of them are living in mobile units or trailers with eight people or more living in there. So they can't social distance at home. They go out to work in the fields. They don't have any PPE. There's no access to a hospital. So uh, if they catch the disease, they're, they're basically like sacrificial lambs to the economy of our needing to have food. So I'll, I'll add to say that um, there's a choice that people face, but it's, it's, we make it, I think you, 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 you alluded to it. There's this, the neoliberals always want to say, uh, well, if you don't like your job, you can go do another one. But what this is showing is the how much that choice is an illusion. Because if people had another choice, they wouldn't be going into a, a plant with 350 infections of COVID-19. They would just go find somewhere else to go. But if there is no other work, and I'll just conclude by saying that, that Amy Goodman mentioned that in one of these... Um, at a church near one of those farms, um, they 350 farm workers showed up to, or something like that, showed up to a food pantry at this church, and the majority of them went home empty-handed. In other words, the people that are dying in the fields to bring us food are going home without enough money to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about an economy of death, or a choice of death, a right to kill. Uh, that's what we're talking about.
Absolutely. I, I mean, for decades now, right, we've been told that individuals, this is kind of like what you were um, suggesting there at the very end, is that individuals solely determine their lives. You know, why are some people super rich? Right? They're rich because of their work ethic, their values, their intellect. Um, and then why do most people not have tens of millions or hundreds of millions or, or even billions of dollars, right? Why, why can the vast majority of people in the world not survive um, weeks or, you know, or, or, or months uh, of a crisis? It's because apparently you know, the vast majority of, uh, uh, of the rest of us have poor work ethics, poor values, or inferior intellects, right? And, and, and this is a dominant narrative uh, of neoliberal capitalism. And I can imagine right now that a lot of people are feeling shame in this moment, personally, feeling a lot of shame about um, the decisions that they think that they have individually made that um, has brought them to this point of anxiety and stress and fear. And, and I think it's really important um, what you're pointing out to say that this is disproportionately fear and anxiety being felt by folks of color, um, especially immigrant folks. But this is also um, a working class issue as well, where lots of people who think of themselves as white um, or, or maybe even think of themselves as middle class, they thought that this system in this country gave a shit about them, that it really genuinely cared about them and that they were safe. But now they're starting to see this, the, these myths, these lies kind of crumble beneath their feet. So, they, yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I just want to name that folks are feeling shame around the inability to protect their loved ones, shame around the uncertainty of whether or not they will be able to pay their bills or have their needs met in the coming weeks or months, and then shame around being a victim of this whole health and economic crisis. So my question for you is, what does spiritual care look like for people who feel as though it is they themselves or maybe a family member, right? Because we could start to blame family members as well that are the individuals to blame for the stress and the agony they are currently experiencing in this moment. I think uh, from a spiritual perspective, I, I, would, I would actually um, lift up the work of um, a man I esteem and admire greatly. He, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon, Edgar Rivera Colon, and he is a professor of narrative medicine at Columbia University and also a spiritual director and a, a longtime Christian radical. And he talks about, he's not the only one, but he talks about the way capitalism structures our desires and structures our inner, inner lives uh, in our emotional, psychological, and spiritual lives, and it, it basically says a lot uh, similar to what you're what you're talking about that we are conditioned on an ideological level on an ideological level to um, basic to on a, to basically to see liberation, to see fulfillment, to see uh, what he talks about living our best life in this individual individual way and he actually he um he talks he has this uh, podcast where he talks about if you think about what is living your best life it might be a nice restaurant um you know with your partner your significant other a bottle of champagne and a nice meal that sounds nice right 
but that forgets the fact that the people in the back of the house that are doing that work, are, that are putting that food on the table, are predominantly brown, predominantly immigrant, working class, and struggling. So I think on a spiritual level, um, in terms of how we, how ministers and pastors can can reframe some of this work, of some of these experiences, by is by reframing the notion of liberation or of fulfillment or of of what God desires for us or what we desire for ourselves in the collective, rather than uh, from from the individual to the collective. And I think that one of the beautiful things about the church is that there there are so many rich um, theological and practical resources resources at our disposal to do that. There's the uh, classic passage, which I don't think is preached on enough, from First uh, Corinthians, that we're one body with many members, and we are all part of the body of Christ. And in fact, that the those members that we of the body that we thought were uh, least important are actually the ones that that are most exalted in Christ. So I think that they're theologically, in terms of preaching, we can we can address this, and an in, individual level, we can sort of walk with folks and, and, and help reframe, help them reframe some of those situations. But also there's a question of revelation. If we're talking about uh, revelation in, in the biblical sense means an uncovering and unveiling. The book of Revelation is, talks about how something is uncovered or something that was not seen before is seen now. And I think to your point, the church can be a place where we uncover the inhumanity of the system and and kind of help people to um, to see where the frustration some of the frustrations and the difficulties that they've been going through are not like you said their own fault but actually have to do with these greater uh, forces that that we're all encountering that are interpolating us and that we're all dealing with and also um, because it's so clear for all of us to see Right, what the contradictions are now. We have to seize on this to do this work of unveiling. And finally, I would just say, on, in terms on a on a practical level, in terms of of spiritual love, uh, spiritual care, the work of ministry right now is just so much of a work of being present with people, listening, allowing them to talk. I think there's a heaviness spiritually that's on so many people mm-hmm. and particularly on, on people with material difficulty, but everybody. So I think spiritual care in this moment is looking like accompaniment. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think, um, I think that a lot of people are uh, maybe feeling that right now. I, and, and even, honestly, when I think about myself, even though my partner and I, um, Ashley, she's a, she's a nurse. I work at the airport. I'm on furlough right now. She's, of course, still having to go to work. But there's even this, this temptation myself who's, who thinks about and, and wants to engage these systems to think about, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have made this financial decision couple months ago or last year or several, you know, there's always this, this push to saying, well, what did you individually do wrong? Right. Could you have individually prepared yourself for this situation? And, and I really appreciate the kind of the words you just shared for us and for other ministers as well to encourage people to come together in this moment, to share in the suffering and um, to reveal that these are systemic problems. Um, uh, this is a social order 
that's been built for us to fail. And, and I think liberation can only be made possible when we start to see that, again, this is a system of death and, and, and our collective liberation and our collective well-being has to be realized together. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think also on a, on a practical level in terms of, in terms of churches, there are these, you know, there are these mutual aid networks that are coming up. Uh, and, and we, I've been trying to get my church, church members in my church, um, involved in one of the mutual aid networks that's been, that's been flourishing in, uh, Washington Heights. And I think it really is, this is really a time conversely where we we're stuck in our houses. A lot of us are stuck in our houses, but it, it you know, Christianity talks a lot about who is our neighbor, right? And the Bernie Sanders campaign had that beautiful piece that talked about, look around you to your left and to your right, and do you see somebody, are you willing to fight for somebody who is not going through what you're going through? Or who are you willing to fight for them as much as you're willing for, to fight for yourself? And we're seeing who our neighbors are. And like the church where I, where I serve, there is a mix of members, uh, socioeconomically, racially, it's very diverse. Um, but on the other side of Broadway, from where we, where our church is located, is a is a more um, uh, Dominican Latinx population is more working class than the other than the side of Broadway where our church is is located, and that community is being hit harder than the side of Broadway that that uh, we're on. But we're all getting hit. Right, but there are ways on practical levels that at churches we can we can bring groceries to one another. We can bail out small businesses to the extent that we are able. We can get to know our neighbors, right? So where's the food pantry in your neighborhood? Can you um, donate some groceries to it, or can you uh, can you volunteer maybe um, bagging groceries to give away? Uh, there are things that we can do that show practical acts of solidarity, along with. Organizing. So um, Sarah New, who has a podcast, religion, the Religion and Socialism podcast, talks about um, reframing this individual to the collective. So I, as an individual, um, can't change the system of power in this country by myself, and I could feel overwhelmed by that, right? But I can get 20 of my church members to call Governor Cuomo and tell him to, to suspend the rent. Or you know, you might not be able in your church to end the problem of contamination from fossil fuels, but you could get a group of people to sue the local power plant that's, yes. you know, mm-hmm. to do a, a small class action lawsuit or a personal lawsuit to to maybe um, get some restitution or, or justice for some people who have been, been damaged. So I think we, a great cure for feeling like we failed is to do something together with other people that we failed as individuals is I think to do something to get together with two, three, four other people and do something. Yeah. And kind of how, uh, mutual aid and solidarity are very different from say more traditional ways of thinking about charity is, is, is exactly what you just said is that we're all getting hit and so when we come together and some of us will give more than others, right? I had a coworker call me the, the other day and she had $20 to her name, right? So um, we, we may all share um, disproportionately, but the thing is, is that if we don't collectively and communally fight for a better world together, 
then we will all be, or the vast majority of us at least, will continue to get pummeled. So in your article, uh, you named uh, familiar businesses like McDonald's and Amazon and Instacart and Costco mm-hmm. and Whole Foods. Uh, and you said that they uh, basically force poverty wages right onto their employees and they're refusing to provide adequate health insurance or hazard pay or proper equipment. So how are these companies that are so widely praised and worshipped in the U.S., as you write, making a killing off the literal killing of the poor? And then also, how does the brutality and violence of these corporate giants reveal the inerrant racist dimensions of American capitalism in particular? Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been really struck by, well, there's a logic to it, I think. How are they making a killing? How are they making so much money? In a world where everything is commodified, from healthcare to food to the things we need to, the, the, the bags we put in our garbage cans, whatever it might be, we need to buy that. That stuff has to come, that is coming from the private sector. So Costco is just exploding with business right now. I um, I mean, I haven't even dared to try to go to a Costco <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I know that the lines are on, around the block and the stores are full in um, 24-7. Mm-hmm. So on, in terms of profit, how are they making a killing? They're, this crisis is driving – because it's, this is the relationship, I think, between scarcity and, and profit in American capitalism – is a brutal neoliberal form of it, but based on scarcity, where there's so much scarcity, people have need. And if we're all stuck in our houses and we can't go out, we, we, need, to get, we need to get food, so we're gonna go to one place. Whole Foods or the grocery store on the corner, in a similar way, um, we need toilet paper, because we, we think we're in a pandemic, right? Or we, we think we're not gonna be able to find toilet paper, so everybody goes to Costco. So that is blowing the sales these are record months of profit for yeah. these companies, mm-hmm. Instacart, Costco. So they're making calories, they're making killing off the killing. You hear story after story on a personal level and on a, uh, on on a more report, you know, in terms of reports that are that it's been widely reported on this point. How Costco, for example, workers are not getting hazard pay, or Instacart workers went on strike uh, that don't have. They're doing the. They're going from building to building, um, and they don't have personal protective equipment. Or we talked about uh, food industry, uh, workers in the fields, um, close close quarters to each other, um, but don't have personal protective equipment, don't have anything, things they need. So uh, it's always been a question of the bottom line. I don't think this is a question on the killing of the poor. Yeah, these are these are billion dollar profit producers, right? Uh, these workers are. And and two months ago, um, uh, again, whether there was illegal wage theft or just the uh, you know, I, I think capitalist wage labor is legalized wage theft, right? Exploitation. Right. But um, what I hear you saying is that in this particular uh, moment where people are flooding to these larger larger corporations, who I mean, the major shareholders and the 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 people at the top the the top executives they're not at these stores that people are having to go to to survive right it's poverty wage workers who as you said you know 15 20 minutes ago they're having to choose 
do I go to work at Instacart, at Costco, at Amazon for the poverty wage so that I can, I don't know, afford food next week? Or do I stay home, lose my job and risk dying, right? Um, So there is this compelling of the working poor to continue to work for poverty wages. And, and I hear you saying is that there's a interesting moment where, where there's this drive to um, kind of uh, hoard, right? Or, or to, to buy up lots and lots of stuff to protect you and your family, to, to see if you can last for a couple of weeks or something, right? Uh, which compels the e- even greater profits right now than it was two or three months ago. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned the racial disparities. So um, New York City is where I live. I actually live in Harlem, and New York City is the picture example. It is the prime example of the racial disparities in our country and in capitalism. Uh, New York City being a perfect example. Thirty-four percent of the deaths in New York City from COVID nineteen um, are. Hispanic or uh, have taken place in the Hispanic community, but or Latinx people, but Latinx people make up only 29% of the population. In Chicago, which is um, even worse, 70, a full 70% of the deaths are of African Americans, but they only make up one third of the population. Mm-hmm. And where the worst in New York City, where the uh, where those those where those cases are, is in um, the Bronx and in certain neighborhoods of Queens. And those are neighborhoods that are predominantly uh, immigrant and people of color. And so if you look on a structural level, right, like there have been generations of disinvestment, um, predatory uh, financial practices, redlining, um, educational, like what uh, Jonathan Kozel years ago called savage inequalities, savage inequalities in the school system. Uh, that created these neighborhoods to be what they were, and then on an economic level, um, what are what are folks what are those folks doing for work? They're porters, so they come from the Bronx down the six line um, or the two three, and they they work in buildings in um, Manhattan, in Central Midtown Manhattan. They're uh, delivery workers, they're janitors, they're sanitation workers, they're workers in hospitals. Um, and all, all across different service industries are comprised predominantly of people of color, working class people of color, and also white folks, but predominantly in this, in this city. And there's always this valence of a racial disparity in American capitalism. Uh, Reverend Michael Vanacore, thank you so much for taking time out of your, uh, uh, your day and joining for our conversation on Faith and Capital. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Chase. It's been a pleasure. Friends, thanks for listening. And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.